epistle that Paul wrote to the church at Colossae. We'll read again verse 1 of chapter 3 and focus our attention then on chapter, or verse 4. Chapter 3, verse 1. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is seated. He's sitting on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth, because you are hid. You are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When, light, when Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall you appear with Him in glory. Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth. That's Paul's conclusion and result of the first four verses, and that's our subject this morning. Mortify your members upon the earth. The word mortify is an imperative mood, present tense verb, so it's a command of God, and it's something we must seek to do daily. As a result of seeking those things which are above, then therefore we are to slay, to kill. Perhaps we could even use the word murder, our own sins. Now what that means first of all is that God is not calling for a no Demo renovation. You know that show where a professional walks into your house and she says, what would you like to keep? And you point to things and say, I I like this, I like this, but I don't want this anymore. And she says, okay, we need to get rid of the countertops, paint the cabinets, we can keep the floor, the chandelier's got to go, we'll put new lights in, and we'll paint everything after we spackle it real good. The only renewal that God is calling for in this chapter is the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. When God walks into the house of your heart, he says, look outside the windows. And surrounding your heart are excavators, front end loaders, skid steers, and wrecking balls. And he will use nothing in the old man, not even the foundation. The entire house must be destroyed, killed, slain. This is not a renewal. This is not a renovation. This is a complete and total devastation. And God says, we will start from scratch and we will not renew any part of your life. The only thing in your life being renewed is the new man which is created in knowledge. Secondly, what does it mean to kill your members? Your members would be your body, your limbs. Now, I admit sometimes I get so frustrated with my sin. I envision myself detaching my head from my body, putting it on the countertop, and just punching my own lights out. And yes, I should invite my wife in and say, have a few shots. But that's not what Paul is talking about. Members upon the earth means the place your body, where corrupt desires are dwelling and your body is the instrument of such corrupt desires. Now we can see this in two places where Paul writes elsewhere. Romans 7, 5, he would say, For when we were in the flesh, the motions of sin, which were by the law, did work in our members to produce fruit unto death. Members' body. What was at work in our members when we were in the flesh? The passions of sin. That's what the word motions mean. What stirred the passions of sin? Believe it or not, the holy and just law. Because just as soon as the law said, you can't do that, the passions of sin said, but that's what I want to do. So to destroy the members of your body is to destroy the passions of sin that are aroused in your mortal bodies. Second one, Romans 6, 12 and 13. Let not sin therefore reign or rule in your mortal bodies. Neither yield yourselves, your members, as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. 
So how would you yield your members, your body, as an instrument of unrighteousness unto sin rather than yielding it to God as an instrument of righteousness to God? You would obey sin in the lust or passion thereof. So what does it mean for your members to be an instrument of sin? It means you're under the rule and reign of desire. So when Paul says mortify the members of your body, he's not talking about a remodel where you come in and you spackle a few holes in your life and you put some new flooring down on the old floor and you change out the lighting. He means go to the root issue of every single sin in your life and root it from the ground up, or as Jesus says, make clean the inside of the cup and the platter first, so that what's on the outside may truly be authentic and clean with the inside. The problem is you and I are more concerned sometimes with the pollution that goes in our body rather than the pollution that's already in our bodies. You know, like... A COVID virus. There are people today still on the planet that will not go to church because they're more concerned about the pollution going in their body rather than the pollution that's already in the body. Called sin. Or like an expiration date in my home. You know, sometimes that jug of something gets pushed back to the back and I miss it. I get it out and I look and expiration date. Who come up with that anyway? Expiration date. It's, it's one day over the date. One day. Sometimes I try to reason and wrestle. It's okay. It's like, nope, nope. In the trash. We will not risk some defilement, some bacteria, some mold going into the body, but every day we treat sin in our own life like it's really not that vile, not that big of a problem. But God is telling us, beloved, in the imperative mood, he wants us to have an all-out commitment to seek, search, and destroy sin at its most basic level in our desires and in our passions. Jesus confronted the wicked generation of his day in Matthew 12, 44, when he said they were kind of like a generation that wants to come in and do an external remodel. He said it's like the spirit of an unclean man goes out of the man, and he walketh about seeking rest, but he's finding none. So he goes back to the house, that's the man, and he finds it empty, swept, and cosmeto, garnished, which means decorated, remodeled. And then he brings with himself seven more spirits, more wicked than himself, and the last estate is worse than the beginning. So shall it be to this wicked generation. What's Jesus saying? Jesus came and it had a reforming effect on society. How? Externally, among the Jews. The Messiah is here, so the one that they wanted to come. And so they kind of cleaned up. They remodeled. They put the paint on the walls. They changed the chandeliers. They put a new covering over the floor. But Jesus says it was only an external reformation. So it leaves the house empty, swept, looking good, but then vulnerable to more unclean spirits, more wicked than before. That describes, in many ways, our own generation and describes what will be the case if we ignore the inside of the house and only work on the external reformation. So, today, in looking at what God is saying and killing sin in our lives, we look at two things. That's all we'll have time for today. First, what is the sin that we're to be killing in this context? So he gives us four categories of sin. The first one, sensual sins. Covetousness. Sinful anger. And sinful prejudices. Four categories. We'll only get a couple of those today. And then why should we be killing sin? Verse 6, because which things sake the wrath of God is coming on the children of disobedience, in the which you also walked formerly when you lived in them. How is that to help us? How can the wrath of God 
really help us and want to see how that can help. All right. Verse 5. Mortify, mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence. These are four sins that are sensual in nature. So first let's talk about what they mean. Fornication is simply the physical act of intimacy outside the covenant bond of marriage. And now we have to include between a man and a woman. Because someone may say, well, we are married. But according to the biblical definition of manhood, womanhood, and what this covenant union is about in the book of Genesis and throughout Scripture. It also includes homosexuality, lesbianism, and all transgender forms in this word, including adultery. Adultery. So God says we must kill these sins. Jesus would tell us in Mark 7.21 that out of the heart proceeds what? Murder, adultery, fornications. So just that verse alone tells us that to kill fornication, it's not enough just to stop it. Now certainly, that's the goal. But if you just stop it, what have you done to the heart? You've left your heart empty, swept, and garnished for another vice to enter that could be worse than the previous. Because out of the heart proceeds fornication. So Jesus is saying we can't blame society for our passions. We can't say, well, if women would just dress differently, I wish they would. I really do. But that's not your problem. Jesus says it's out of your own passions comes fornication. You can't shift this blame to anyone else except us. Fornication. Paul would say in 1 Thessalonians 4.4, This is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you abstain, resist, restrain from fornication. Clearly this is a zero tolerance with God. Don't let it happen. Don't do it. Why? It's the will of God. And it's part of your holiness, your, your purification, which follows your once for all purification. It's not a means of getting right with God, but it follows having been made right with God that you no longer walk in them like you formerly did and you no longer live in them like you formerly did. Why? You've been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 5.3 or two rather, Paul would say, but walk in love as Christ has also loved you and given himself an offering and a sacrifice for a sweet-smelling savour unto the Lord, but fornication. Now look at the contrast. So he's talking about love. What is a good definition of love in Ephesians 5.2? A willing self-sacrifice. Jesus loved you. He offered himself in sacrifice for the good of others. It was for you. What is fornication? Somebody says, well, that's love. Fornication is a willing self-gratification at the expense of another person that you have no covenant relationship with. You are using that person for your own self-gratification with no covenant commitment and no desire to have one. Therefore, by definition, it is not love. It is selfishness at the center of our hearts. But fornication... And uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you. Once means not even. Named means exist. Paul is not saying it's not possible that a Christian could commit such a sin. He's saying don't let it exist. Zero tolerance. Yes, there's forgiveness for the sin. But God says don't let it be named as it becometh saints. Hagiadzo. Holy people, holy ones. Verse 12, Colossians 3. Put on therefore as the elect of God, holy. You've been made holy by the blood of Jesus Christ. It's not becoming, it's not suitable, it's not appropriate for saints who've been made holy to live in unholiness 
which is fornication. God has given intimacy for the believers. It's a creation of God to be experienced in the safe boundaries of covenant relationship. Safe boundaries between one man and one woman. And yes, Paul says, you walked in them, which means many in this room have walked in that. But gloriously, we've been forgiven. And now Paul says, God speaking through him, don't walk that way anymore. Kill fornication. The word here for fornication is pornaya, pornaya, which comes from the Greek word root pornos, which we get our English word pornos graphe. Pornography, pornography. This is also forbidden by God. The root word pornos means male prostitution. We become prostitutes when we engage in the act of pornography. It means whoremongering at its root word. It's not writing, but it's taking what's written in images and viewing them. Statistics from a few years ago said that over 28 billion people visited such sites in one year. Taking the world's population, that's 3.75 visits per every human being on the planet. That's how pervasive it is. The hours watched continuously could be equated in one year to a 68-year-old man who from birth, if it could be done, was sat in front of a TV and for 24-7 every second of his life for 68 years watched pornography. And those statistics are from a few years ago. It's a pandemic. And when a generation is raised on a kind of love that is self-seeking such as that, what are the ramifications? The destruction of the family, the destruction of marriage, the Me Too movement, the rise in sexual crimes, and the bringing both temporal and eternal wrath on a people. Because that's where Paul says these go. Now gloriously, we've been forgiven. But God is saying, kill it. Kill it. And let me tell you, Beloved, you can't do this alone. 60% of Christian men are viewing pornography. Over 50% of pastors are viewing pornography. Over 70% of young people between 18 and 24. What that tells me is 50% of the people in this room right now, right here, right now, are watching pornography. If the statistics are right, 50%. Now maybe they're off for this room, but We've got to make that assumption. God aims to help you. You need to confess it, not only to God, but somebody else. You will not be shamed. You will not be belittled. If we shame you, we've forgotten the grace of God. And this is where you lived one day. But you cannot do it alone. Is the compelling drive in your soul that seeks to be satisfied, and it never will be. And you want more and more and more. And it goes to greater depths and greater depths. So to mortify it, you're going to have to have help. Don't wait. Don't wait. Tell your parents, tell your wife, tell your husband, tell me. And walk down the pathway of purity, because God is gracious and loving and forgiving. And this is a community that will support you. No, I'm not going to announce that. That's between you and whoever you seek help from in this body. But get help. Brothers, we're not professionals. Nobody's a professional in Christianity. And we're not to be professionals. We're a blood-bought community that's to be loving, gracious, speaking truth and helping in love. So don't wait another hour, another minute May this day be the day you seek the help you need because it's only going to take you deeper and deeper. It'll destroy your coming marriage or your marriage now. It'll destroy everything in your life. 
And so God says, kill fornication in every form of fornication we find in the Bible. Next, kill uncleanness. So if we move from fornication, it comes to uncleanness. I think there's a sort of a, a connection here. Uncleanness means lewd or unclean thoughts. They give rise to lewd and unclean actions. Romans 1.24 Wherefore God gave them up to the uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. Where did fornication, where did homosexuality, where did lesbianism, where did transgender come from? Uncleanness through lust. So it began with a thought, an unclean, elude thought. Then it was wrestled with, it was entertained, it was allowed to remain. And eventually it leads to the physical act. So God gives a society over to uncleanness in Romans 1.24. Galatians 5.19, now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness. Sort of suggesting that the uncleanness gives rise to the two former. What are the deeds of the flesh? Well, they come from the self-gratification that your flesh is seeking. And the number one pursuit of that self-gratification today is what? Sensuality. It's bombarding us. It is in every facet of life. It is in every commercial, every show, every magazine. It's in everything. Sensuality is the culture we're living in. It's, you can't escape it in the sense of you're going to be bombarded visually and audibly somewhere in your life. It work and jokes everywhere. This sin that's damning people to an eternity of hell, is rampant. So God says, kill uncleanness. First Thessalonians 4, 7, For God hath not called you to that, uncleanness, He hadn't called you to that, but to holiness. He's called you to be a holy people to represent Him on the earth. And a holy people finds something superior than unlawful expressions. Of passion. They find God to be the source of our help and strength, and God to be the source of ultimate fulfillment. So, mortify uncleanness. Next, from fornication to uncleanness, lewd, unclean thoughts, we go to inordinate affection, which is pathos or passion. So, fornication comes out of unclean thoughts, which arises out of a passion. Inordinate expresses excess largeness of passions. It's a strong feeling to do or to have something. The English word inordinate is, is large and excessive, so it's, it's strong, it's large, it's a feeling, it's a passion, it's powerful, we could say, when it's inordinate. Romans one twenty six. For this cause God also gave them up unto vile affections inordinate affections, inordinate passions. That even the women did leave the natural use of the body which is against nature. Likewise, men with men who burn in their lust one for another, doing that which is unseemly, receiving in themselves the recompense of their error which is meet, fit, appropriate. Inflamed, burning, Inflamed passion, burning, unclean thoughts from passion is producing women with women, men with men, men with women, fornication. Those are, those are all sin. So, heterosexual sin is still sin. Paul would use this word in... 1 Thessalonians 4, 5, when he would say, not in the lust of concupiscence, in the passion of concupiscence. So he'd say, 
abstain from fornication, that you know how to, you ought to possess your vessel in sanctification and honor. Now that could be wife or body. I take it to mean body there. So don't use your body for fornication. Use your body in sanctification and honor, not in the lust of concupiscence with the Gentiles, unsaved people, who don't know God. That's what they do. How do they use their body? They've given their bodies over to fornication, uncleanliness, and the pursuit of passion in a sensual way. Why? They don't know God. But you do know God. What then is the power to mortify inordinate passions? Knowing the supremacy of the love of Christ Jesus our Lord is part of the answer. It's, it's the main answer. We have to flesh that out a little later, maybe next week. So don't either choose a wife or use your body in inordinate passion or affection. Use your body or even choose a wife or husband with a high regard for God in sanctification and honor for God, valuing God, is what Paul is saying. Now you get the feel, which we would be right, because Paul addresses this so much that the societies they were living in were much like ours today. Right? These Christians had had a former lifestyle in the sensual sense. It was part of their life as pagans. And now, what has happened? They've been called effectually by God. They know Christ, and now they've been set on a pathway of seeking and setting their affections on Christ where He sits, and then as a result, mortifying, slaying sin at the level of passion. Not just the body level, that, that's got to be worked out too, but the level of inordinate affection. Next, evil concupiscence. This brings us down to the word that means longing and craving. So if you, you track the order, in my way of thinking, not dogmatic on this, but the fornication, the, the sins of the body, come from unclean, lewd thoughts, which are rooted in passion, which are rooted in a craving or a longing for something, which is why to be fulfilled. You want to be fulfilled. And so the flesh seeks that fulfillment in every way possible in self-gratification using people as the object of that gratification. This, by definition, is the opposite of love. No matter what anybody says on the planet, it is emphatically unloving to use everyone in the service of my passions. And so we have to kill down at the deepest level our longings, our cravings. How do you kill a longing or a craving for chocolate? You go eat the chocolate, right? But how do you kill a longing or a craving for something forbidden? You find and you eat that which is far superior to chocolate. So what is that? Spiritually, it's the Christ. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man or the woman that trusteth in him. If so be that you've tasted that the Lord is gracious, to whom coming? Disallowed indeed of men. He's the living stone. He's been rejected of men, but he's precious. He's prized. He's valued as the only chocolate, the only food that can really bring fulfillment to your soul. So we are to kill the longings or cravings. James 1.14, James says that these longings are what tempt us and draw us away from God. But every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust, which is the English word in our text, concupiscence. Evil, bad, wrong, base, concupiscence is craving desire. You're drawn away, not because of that other person did something. They may have been a stimulus. They may have allured you, but it's because something inside of you called lust drew you away. So God is saying, kill that thing called craving and longing. Ephesians 4.22, put off the old man concerning the former conversation, 
which is corrupt according to deceitful desires. So Paul says this concupiscence is corrupt. It's what causes us to perish. And it's deceitful. It's deceitful because it's telling you if you have this, if you, if you get this, if you can just do this, everybody else is doing it, they all seem happy, you will be fulfilled. That's a lie from hell itself. So they allure us, they are deceitful, and they drown men in perdition and destruction, Paul would say in 1 Timothy 6, 9. They that will be rich, they that will be rich, they will it, they want it. They're after it, they desire it. What happens? Fall into temptation and a noose. Do you believe God on that? Have you ever found God to lie to you? A temptation and a snare, a noose, a trap, and you fall into many foolish and hurtful lusts, concupiscence. Same Greek word. Many. Many of those can be right here in this life. Many foolish and hurtful lusts which are drowning men in destruction and perdition. See, temporally it can, can drown you here. It can bring many hurtful things to your life. But eternally, it's going to drown men forever in eternal perdition and destruction. So God says, by His grace, and by the supremacy of the Christ that we've been learning about, Colossians 1, Colossians 2, and 3, 1 through 4, Slay, murder, kill sensual sin. Kill it. It will never be good for you. It will never be right for you. And it will never bring you what you think it's going to bring you. And the next word kind of keys us in on that. The next thing we're to kill is covetousness, which is idolatry. I think covetousness is kind of a, a root word for the, even the sensual sins. Covetousness can go far beyond illicit sins or forbidden sins covetousness reaches out and grabs things that are good for us and says don't covet them covetousness is a greedy desire to have more and more and more it's greedy because it's a selfish desire you say well i just wanted more helpings of food am i covetousness Maybe not. Selfish desire for more and more. So you may desire more of something and not be covetous. But when it's a selfish desire for more and more, what happens to fornication, unclean thoughts, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence? It's never enough. And society dives deeper and deeper into moral degradation and depravity. Why? Because more. More ways, new ideas, more. The old ways don't satisfy. More covetousness is like a root black hole that sucks everything in it because I can't get more. 68 hours of pornography is not enough. I need more and more. Why would you need more if it was doing what you thought it was going to do? Because it won't. It'll never, ever satisfy you. And look at our society. And you can see, first it's true from God's Word, but secondly, we see it in our society. Why is covetousness idolatry? Because we're asking something, whether it's forbidden or not forbidden, we're asking it to be our functional God, and it becomes the counterfeit God of our choice. Functional because we all say, well, I trust in Jesus and nobody else. Jesus is the Lord of my life, but functionally, who really is? Who do you put your functional trust in or your functional hope in? That's what the word is designed to express. And often we find that there are counterfeit gods that we are asking to do what Jesus alone can do. 
We're asking them to function like Jesus is supposed to function. And then we look to them to deliver on what we expect, whether it's forbidden or not forbidden as it regards our passions. Exodus chapter 20, verse 2, God speaks of this issue when He says, I am the Lord thy God that brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. So to have another God before God is idolatry. God says, you're, you're not to have another God beside me, in front of me, above me, before me. You say, well, gods don't exist. But functional gods do. And counterfeit gods do. So how would you put another God in front of God? You would ask that God to do what God alone is supposed to do. And the, and the tenth commandment really sums up, it's like I've said before, two bookends on, on the Ten Commandments is, Thou shalt not covet. Don't covet your neighbor's house, his wife, his manservant, men servants. Don't covet anything he has. Now, why do people kill each other? Because you wanted your neighbor's house, and so you kill him so you can have it, or something else. Why does the marriage fall apart? Because you wanted what was not yours, your neighbor's wife or your husband. Because you were covetous. Why did you steal that? Because you wanted out of covetousness to have more. Why do you bear false witness? Everything is rooted in this one culprit idolatry called covetousness. So when we covet, we are looking to something, some tangible object or person to deliver on what we want that can only come from God alone. What is that? We look to them to give us significance, meaning, purpose, fulfillment, safety, security. A lot of those things you can point to good things in your life. And maybe they're idols. Why didn't Paul just say, you know, money is the idol? Why didn't he list money or power? Because money is not an idol until you covet it. So covetousness is the culprit. Power You may have power. Power is not an idol until you must have it. And you need more of it. Your marriage is not an idol until you covet something from the marriage as your functional God that only Christ alone can be for you. Your children are not your idols until you expect your children to deliver on some kind of meaning and purpose that you missed in your childhood? You want them to deliver that to you? Now they're your idol because you covet something that only God alone can give. Covetousness is idolatry, and there are many things that we choose to be our gods. Now, how do we know when we are covetous? We we have to ask a series of questions. A few would be, why am I afraid? Why am I anxious? Why am I worried? That could reveal an idol. Why am I sad? Why am I depressed? Why am I moody? You search the passions and ask yourself, what affection, what am I looking to for meaning, purpose, significance, fulfillment, security, safety? When that safety net is being pulled away, boy, I'm an anxious person. You just identified your idol. God says, uproot it, bring it to the surface, and punch its lights out. Kill it. But you have to replace it with the love of God and delighting in who God is for what? Your fulfillment, your meaning, your purpose, your safety, your security. Without that, we're empty, swept, and garnished. Got rid of that bad thing. What's the next bad thing? What's the next idol? We have, as Calvin said, a heart that produces idols regularly. It's a factory. We pump them out, which is why the imperative present tense means every day. There are triggers, there are responses, there are stimulus, there are things happening in our relationships that tell us that's an idol. I need to kill it. And then I need to look to a promise 
in Scripture where God says, I'm going to be that for you. See, when we want more than what God is, it's an idol. But He says faith comes to God believing that He is your security, your safety, your meaning, your fulfillment, your purpose, your everything. God has no pleasure when we come to Him thinking that this other God is functioning as He is. We commit idolatry when we think we've got to have more than what God gives and I'm no longer content. He will give. God is a sun and a shield. He will give grace and glory. No good thing will He withhold from them who walk uprightly or trust Him. No real good. No real good. Whatever God gives is good. And we commit idolatry and we think we have to have more than what God is doing in our lives. Because everything He's doing, He's working everything out after the counsel of His own will. And why? Just sang the song. I'm not going to get the words right. It hit me as I was saying it. Have you not seen how all your longings have been fulfilled in what the Almighty was doing? I didn't feel so fulfilled in the moment. No, but it's where God is taking you in His providence in your life. So covetous says, I need more than what God is. I need more than what God gives. I need more than what God is doing. And it produces all kinds of relational problems. We should ask ourselves, why am I angry? Why am I wrathful? Why am I malicious? Why am I mean-spirited? Why am I ugly, as my mother used to say? You're being ugly. Paul told us, remember, Paul was a covetous man serving all kinds of lust and pleasure, so he lived in malice and envy, hateful and hating. Would you consider yourself a loving person? Don't answer that yet. All of us are saying, I mean, yeah, I think I... Who are you serving? What are you doing for others? How are you going out to the good of others? Do you get malicious, ill will? You'd like just soon that person experience some harm. It's because we're serving functional gods. And we ask, what is the ruling desire of my heart? God is helping us to, sh- to bring to the surface. Oh, that. I thought it was her. I thought it was him. I thought it was those people. I thought it was the world. No, Jesus says, out of the abundance of your heart, what's in the well is coming out of the bucket. When you start to look deeper in the well, God graciously uncovers the idols of the heart. Now, we'll just close here. We won't get far. I didn't mean to take that long. but Why should we? Verse 6, why should we kill these things? For which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. Survey of Christians, faith, mature, mature faith Christians so is the survey. 19% believe that God would punish anybody, that God is wrathful. What are the implications if we remove the wrath of God from our thinking? One is that we lose the doctrine of penal substitution. It's gone. Penal punishment, substitution. Somebody stepped in your place and took the hit, the penalty. What was the penalty of breaking the law? Wrath. You remove the wrath of God. The doctrine of the cross is obliterated. Doctrines have consequences. Don't ever let anybody tell you doctrines don't matter. And there's sometimes we make mountains out of molehills. I get it. But that's, not what, that's, a, that's a mountain. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood. For what cause? To declare His righteousness. Propitiation means appeasement of His wrath. You take away the appeasement of His wrath, you took away the declaration of His righteousness, which is what? The gospel is gone. There are Christians on the planet denying the wrath of God. You deny the need for the gospel. Implication number two, the goodness of God. The wrath of God is an expression of His goodness. 
Would you say of a human being who's indifferent, callous, careless to child trafficking? Would you say, well, that, that's, well that's good. I mean, fundamentally, human terms, he's a pretty good guy. I don't care if they try. I don't care what they do. That's not good. Nor is God good if he doesn't care about sin and iniquity and trespassing his law. Is a judge good that lets such a man go that participates in child trafficking? Would you say in human terms, well, that's good. I mean, that's a good judge. No, you would not. Nor is God good if he has no wrath. That is not good. It's an expression of his goodness. It's an expression of his love. The wrath of God is his holy love stirred into action against sin. Like a mother's love for her child is stirred into action wrathfully when someone tries to harm her child. Is that right? Is that righteous? Is that good? Or should she sit back with indifference and say, well, what does it matter? Take him, take the whole bunch. That's not good. That's not love. And what is it that God loves? Does he love me that much? We have to be careful here. What God loves so much is the glory of his name. That's at the center of his wrath and his love. And he draws us to the center of his love, which is his glory. For example, why is the wrath of God revealed in Romans 1, 18? For the wrath of God, just temporal wrath on a society. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. You would say, well, yeah, look at all the sensual sins. That's why it's revealed. Look look at all that's going on. That's not why. That is the wrath. 24, 26, 28. Wherefore God gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts. The wrath of God is giving a society to self-destruction. Verse 26. For this cause God gave them up to vile affections. Verse 28. Even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. He gave them up. America is under the wrath of God. There is no debate on that. No debate. The wrath of God is sensuality. That's not why he's wrathful. The wrath of God is the sensuality we see. And the society will self-destruct. It absolutely will. What is the cause of his wrath in Romans 1? It's him. They hold the truth in an unrighteous way. Why is his wrath unleashed? It's something related to him, not you. They suppress the truth of God. When they knew God, they do not give him glory as God. Why is his wrath revealed? What's the cause? They will not give his matchless name glory. Why is the wrath of God revealed? They change the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like unto corruptible man, birds, four-footed beasts, and creeping things. Why is he so wrathful? Because they refuse to honor his name. The result of that wrath is sensuality, self-destruction. Why is he wrathful? Who changed the truth of God in his supremacy into a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Wherefore, He gives them over, that's His wrath. When you look at the society and you see everyone identifying themselves by their inner impulses, where identity is no longer with a moral framework of reference who God is, it's based on what you want, so that all external references matter no more. It doesn't matter if I'm a man. If my identity is in my impulses and I want to be a woman then I ought to be able to do that because that's what makes me happy. That is the wrath of God. That's not the cause. The cause is that we belittle the God of glory. Now what happens when a church belittles His glory? That's referring to natural man. And so we're, we're in a therapeutic culture where the 
the political structure, the judicial system is turning toward therapy, towards people who think their identity is in their inner impulse, which think to have dignity, you need to be able to express it with shamelessness. And you have to have people to affirm you if you're going to have any happiness in your identity. And so the politics and the judicial system slowly but surely are starting to judge people and give sentences on not on what people do, but what they think and what they believe about a person's identity. You can lose your job for saying he's a man when he doesn't want to be a man. It's what you say and think now that is criminal. Why? Because the identity of our culture is based on inner passion. So you can be an animal. You can be any. Why? Because I desire to be such. This is the wrath of God. This is the wrath of God. And the wrath of God, finally we lose, we lose the wonder of His mercy and love. As soon as we lose the wrath of God, and we, we ignore it, we don't want to talk about it, we don't believe it, we've just lost the wonder of His mercy. Because look what Paul says. The wrath is coming on the children of disobedience. It's, it's coming temporally here. It's coming eternally. In the which you also walked formerly when you lived that way. Why is it not coming for you? There's a redemptive overtone here to the wrath of God. Why? Is it not coming? Is Paul suggesting, look, if you just mortify sin enough, you can get to the place where you stop living in them and that's how you avoid the wrath of God. No. The word disobedience can also be translated Romans 11, 30, 32 and Hebrews 4, 6. Unbelief. They are the children of unbelief. They do not trust or treasure God. But you don't live that way anymore, giving us the, the clue to the remedy because you trust in Jesus who bore the wrath of God on your place. Isn't this what Paul means in Ephesians 2-3 when he says, among whom we all had our conversation in time past, or we lived formerly. Colossians 3-7. What were we doing? We were fulfilling the lust of the flesh, the desires of the flesh and the mind. We were fornicating. We were passionate. We had inordinate affection and you evil concupiscence. And we were by nature children of what? Wrath, just like everybody else. Now what happens when you remove that wrath? See, in a real way, wrath was coming for you. In a sense. I know the, the purpose of God had another plan. But in a sense, you were born by nature. You came into the world under the wrath of God as a child of disobedience, which means you were just pursuing your passions, which made you accountable to God and under His wrath. But God, who is rich in mercy, for the great love wherewith He loved us. Notice how Paul says that. For the great love wherewith He loved you. He's just pointing back to God, not to you. Here, He'll point to you. You were dead in sin. Dead, 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 dead in sin. And God determined to come to you as a child of disobedience and make you a child of the King. A King. A Son of God. Adopted into His family. To know and experience the supremacy of His love. Why are you still living in the sewage of sensuality? Why are you living in sewage? See, when we understand what we were, the mercy and love of God is wondered at and amazed. Remove that wrath and it's just like, well, I, I guess I deserve it. I mean, not that bad. But keep wrath where it's supposed to be. And you see it's been satisfied in Christ. And now we are a people filled with mercy because we see His mercy. We're being filled with love, the biblical kind of love, because we love the God who is rich in mercy and love. Wherewith He saved us. Raised us up together. Made us sit together in heavenly places. That in the ages to come, He might show what is the exceeding riches 
of His kindness and His grace to you forever. You lived in them, but now you live by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave Himself for you. So on that basis, Paul is saying, kill these things. Kill them. Beloved, the reason our society has risen with such rapidity to the place it is concerning the wrath of God and sensuality is because every human being on the planet just about has a smartphone. These sensual sins throughout history have been localized like a Sodom and Gomorrah in different places on the planet. But now every person simultaneously can see images that are desensitizing the conscience and moving them past feeling to lasciviousness, to work all uncleanliness with covetousness, Ephesians 4, 17 through 19. So it's raising to a crescendo rapidly because the access to a desensitized conscience is in everybody's hands. So what is the, the solution for the church? I hope you know that a year from November is not going to do it. It's not going to do it. Is it any wonder that Paul precedes the wrath of God in Romans 1, 18 with the power of the gospel? Do you think that's accidental? I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus. It is the power of God, for the wrath of God is revealed. I think Paul is saying when the wrath of God is being revealed even temporally, it's setting the stage for the power of God to burst forth with the gospel, if we see it, if we know it, and stop turning to the functional God of government and politics and presidents and whoever it may be, they'll never do it. The church is the place where the power of the gospel goes out and shows to a world that has a false identity where true identity lies. It lies in the image of the Son of God. We're all being renewed into a singular image called Christ for which He's shaping and molding us. And then we show to the world who's confused and thinking they're a man when they're a woman or an animal or thinking fulfillment comes in sensuality. You say, here's true identity. It's in Christ. And we bring the gospel to a world that's under the wrath of God because he's setting the stage for Romans 3. But now the righteousness of God is manifested. When? When the wrath of God is manifested. Because God aims to declare his righteousness through the gospel and he's aiming to use you, the church, to do it. So let us be the people of God that are Killing sin, sensual sins, covetousness, sinful anger, prejudices, and let them see a people being renewed in the true image. The new man is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. And that's Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for your greatness, your goodness, and bearing your own wrath in the person of Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you for redemption, salvation. Thank you, Lord, that we once walked in them and we lived at one time in sensuality and sinful anger, in covetousness and in prejudice. And Lord, we know that being Christians doesn't mean we can't still fall to such sins. We experience it. We wrestle with it. We all know sinful anger. We know what covetousness is about. And Lord, the sin of sensuality is still something that is struggled against. So Lord, help us to see and to know and experience your love in such a way that we look to you to provide the meaning, the purpose, the fulfillment, the safety, the sanctuary, the refuge, the deliverance, the rescue, the help, the grace, the mercy and everything that you are that we find about you in Scripture, and bring our hearts and minds to the Word of God, which is the place, the only place the Holy Spirit uses to kill sin, and help us know more of the realities of being content in what you give and being content in what you're doing, as Job was in his great pain and sorrow, 
He expressed words that said, I'm still content. Even though he slay me, yet will I trust him. May that be our, our testimony. May your grace provide in such a way that we could say such things to your glory. And may we be on guard against the sensuality of our culture, which is an expression of your wrath. And may we then be ready to be a people that shines the light and the gospel on Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.